Good afternoon and welcome to today's employer advisory session. Look ahead what the election could mean for healthcare. My name is Annette Bechtold, the Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Compliance at One Digital. Today I'm joined by my colleague Jamie Webb Akasaka, VP Legal Counsel for our HR Consulting Division. This series of advisory sessions has been in response to a rapidly changing economic and health environment where business and HR leaders have been forced to take unprecedented actions to to protect their employees and their organization. The luxury of deliberating on key decisions vanished overnight, but the impact of those decisions are going to be a key to our survival. We're going to be focusing on some big picture issues today in our discussion. So please keep in mind that questions specific to state laws are best directed to your one digital consultant as regulations vary state by state and they're changing rapidly. So right now I'm going to turn it over to Jamie and she's going to begin by walking us through kind of the different areas that we're going to cover today. Thanks so much, Annette. So today we want to talk about a few different areas. First and foremost, we want to take a look at where we are today and looking at the actions that the current Congress and our current administration's actions and positions have been on healthcare and the employment landscape. And then from there, we want to look at what do we need to consider in terms of what are important issues and processes and potential solutions to the key issues that are important for employers. And then we're gonna move to what's on the table and take a look at the candidates' platforms on healthcare and employment issues to see what the possibilities are and where we may end up going from here. Great, thanks, Jamie. So let's let's get started on kind of thinking about where are we today. So Article One of the Constitution grants all legislative powers to be a bicameral process or bicameral Congress, I should say. So you've got the House of Representatives, we've got the Senate, and that is this great compromise that they've devised to seek sort of balance in in the effects of popular majorities and interests of the states. So the system. The way it's concocted is that we have the House, each House representative has a two-year term, and then there is a maximum of 435 population-based district seats for the House. In the Senate, um, voters of each state elect two different senators who serve a six-year term, and those terms overlap so that only one-third of the chamber is up for every election. So every two years, we vote on all 435 seats in the House and one-third of the Senate, and then every four years, the president. So this year, it's the president, the 435 House seats, and 35 senators rather than 33 because there are two special elections this year being held for two senators. who passed away midterm. So that um, John McCain in Arizona and Johnny Isaacson in Georgia. So here's a summary and kind of the makeup of what we see today. So if you take a look, this is how the, the two different chambers lay out. So you have a Democratic majority in the House, 232 seats compared to 198. There are currently four vacancies in the House, and one um, person had changed their uh, affiliation from independent to libertarian. And on the Senate side, you see a Republican majority of 53 
seats, Republican and 45. Senate, two independent. Those two independent typically vote with, um, with the Democratic Party most of the time. And so it's sort of this 53 to 47 that you're seeing. So let's talk a little bit about... Um, about the legislative process. So I I just want to kind of keep this in your mind as we're thinking about what's been done, what hasn't been done, why not? So if we consider kind of these two chambers, um, they're fundamentally, they're sort of equal. They both have legislative roles and functions, but they're different. So the House can only originate legislation that has that affects revenue. They basically are in charge of the purse strings. And then the Senate confirms presidential nominations. They approve treaties. They get, and, and together they enact laws. So basically, they both have to agree on the same form of the law, and then it moves on to the president for his his approval. Now, because each chamber has um, constitutional authority, it sort of makes up its own rules about how the process works. And so um, how the House has particular rules, the Senate has particular rules and procedures. Now, the House... Um, their process moves relatively quickly. The Senate is more deliberative and uh, overtaking quick action, if you if you think of it that way. So, for example, um, the fili- filibuster is a procedural piece that you, you've heard a lot about. And so that allows a member to act in such a way that it obstructs the process. So most often that's done through like incessant speaking that on the floor that provides a delay to the a bill moving forward to a vote. So basically, it's this unending debate. And the Senate can move for what's called cloture, which is a French word that means to terminate something, to ask the members to vote on whether they can end the debate and move forward. And and that is the only way to stop a filibuster. So it's something that you heard if you watch the debates. They talked a little bit about the filibuster. You'll see things about that. Um, So basically... Somebody can delay the process for as long as they want to, and they can talk about anything while they're talking. Um, But once cloture is invoked, then there's only 30 additional hours of debate, debate, and then they have to uh, present and vote. Now, in order to get cloture, requires three-fifths of whoever's present in the Senate and voting at the time, which if all 100 are there, that means you have to have 60 votes. So um, there are these elaborate processes, let's just put it that way, in order to to give people their voice and and allow them to vote and some measures to keep things moving along. So I want you to keep those things in mind as we kind of talk through um, some things that, and, and take a look at what's been done by this 116th Congress. So this 116th Congress has been in session since 2017. And it will end at the end of this year. And the 117th will be the brand new Congress taking over in January. Every time a new Congress starts, then um, all the bills are thrown out and everything starts over from scratch. So uh, interesting to, to note. So let's look at what congressional things have happened. What have the lawmakers done in this past term? 
Well, we had the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which reduced the individual mandate to zero. It, uh, for a couple of years, took the medical expense deduction down from the 10% that it had been raised to under the prior administration to seven and a half. So in other words, a tax break if your uh, medical expenses exceed seven and a half percent of your adjusted gross income. Some temporary tax uh, you know, credits for employers providing family and medical leave for the tax years of 2018 and 19 uh, eliminated some of the employer deductions on transit. And again, I'm only kind of looking at benefits related topics here. Then December 17th and 19th, we had the appropriations bill that was passed and every year they have to fund the government and these appropriations bills um, drive the budget and the operating expenses for the government for the next fiscal year, October 1 to September 30th. Well, they used a continuing resolution to push it forward um, and it push it forward for a few months till they could decide things. The continuing resolution in 2018 funded CHIP, had a provision to fund CHIP for six years. It delayed the Cadillac and device taxes for two years and delayed the HIT tax, the tax on health insurers for a year. But then along comes 2019 and two funding bills pass on December 17th and 19th of, of last year, which actually repeal three specific things from the Affordable Care Act. It appeals the 2.3% excise tax on the sale of medical devices. It also um, terminates the health insurance tax, which accounts for about 2 to 3% um, additional premium uh, charges to insurance participants year over year. Um, that will begin, that is eliminated beginning 2021. When they passed, it was too late and it was already in play for 2020. So that will uh, be eliminated starting in 2021 and the Cadillac tax gets uh, repealed before it ever actually takes place. Um, beyond that, they really, you know, the year came and with all new things. And so everything was focused on the pandemic. And so you had, uh, you know, the spending bill to start, uh, you know, funding the outbreak, uh, funding the treatment for outbreak, start uh, uh, vaccine research and those types of things. We saw the president declare the national emergency a week later, and then the families first came out, um, you know, five days later than that to, to uh, help individuals to have emergency paid sick leave related to COVID and also this expanded uh, family medical leave, which we've talked about quite a bit in the past. On the heels of that, you know, a few, um, a week or a week, week and a half later comes the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Securities Act, which does a lot of things. It helps, uh, you know, uh, provides uh, $3 trillion in funding to help um, individuals who are displaced, they can't work, there's extra unemployment payments, the federal government's helping state with unemployment. It um, also incents employers to retain the workforce as well, um, also giving um, healthcare uh, benefits and tax benefits and different things to try to stabilize um, workers, their families during this pandemic and the shutdowns that hit the corresponding shutdown. So a lot of new things came out of that, you know, coverage for testing and, you know, was added this new testing with no cost sharing. We saw 
you know, all different kinds of uh, protections around disclosure of, of records and people's protected health information, high deductible health plans, um, were able to uh, receive telehealth services and other um, other first dollar coverage without losing without disqualifying their health savings account or their ability to contribute to it. Um, expanded telehealth for um, home dialysis patients, hospice, Medicare, who it was previously prohibited for. Over-the-counter uh, meds became now uh, covered under your FSA, your HSA. And then we had a number of extensions that came out of that, including for COBRA and for premium payments, et cetera. So really all the stopgap things to help people survive and thrive through this uh, this tough time, including the all the business loans that came out. And then finally, we had the... Um, additional funding that was added for those. So that's where Congress spent its time. Now, if we kind of take a look at the administration and the things that happened during this time, we think about all all the executive orders. And executive orders are basically, if if you were to equate the president to the CEO of a company, it's the CEO saying, hey, departments who report to me, here's what I'd like you to do. Here are the things I want you to focus on. They have to operate within the confines of the law. They can't create law. Only only the two chambers, the House and Senate can create law. But what they can do is write rules around the law or interpret the, the intent of the law to create po- policy and procedure. And so that's what these executive orders do. They instruct the agencies that report to the executive branch. And so when we think about that for healthcare, it would be um, the Department of Labor, the Secretary of Treasury, and the Secretary of Health and Human Services, which would include the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid um, services as well. And so here are the actions that the president took very early on. We had, uh, he instructed the agency to start leaving the burdens um, on the states, on the health industry, um, and uh, do whatever within the confines of law to make it easier and people less burdensome. And then um, following that in April, he started the commission that was to begin that combating of the drug addiction and opioid crisis, executive order to promote healthcare and choice competition. This is what created some of the, the direction to the agencies to expand association health plans, short-term limited duration insurance policies, as well as expansion of health reimbursement arrangements. And then um, there was uh, an it, there was a statement that came out. Um, requesting that Congress really work on ending surprise medical bills. And those are the, those are those bills that um, if you, if you're treated out of network to no fault of your own, so it's an emergency or you didn't pick, it's a doctor you don't pick, they're either involuntarily treating you like an anesthesiologist or a radiologist. You don't get to pick those people and they're out of network. You shouldn't receive a uh, a surprise bill. Patients shouldn't be responsible for that difference. And then the right to know came in that all centered all around transparency in both drug pricing as well as other other pieces and and the whole 
policy about American patients first and really talking more and putting more emphasis there. But this past year has been a flurry of executive orders and executive orders aren't normal. They're the typical president probably issues in their term, you know, anywhere from 180 to 200 executive orders um, in their terms. Um, so we see a lot here. I'm not going to read them all to you. Just suffice it to say there were quite a few things that focused on, you know, um, transparency that focus on individual, you know, uh, bringing medical treatment back up to its, um, the levels that, that we should have, um, Responding, obviously, to COVID was something that was huge. Um, looking to um, lower prices in drugs, there were four just in July here, you can see. Um, and the dates that you're seeing are the dates they post to the Federal Register. So that those are when the time clock starts running on, on you know, the, the effective dates. Um, so usually the the they're pre-released a few days prior to that or signed a few days prior. And then a few days later, then they get posted to the federal register, which makes them official. Um, so you can kind of see some of these things, you know, access to this um, life-saving medication. This was the insulin and epinephrine that came up in the debate yesterday um, in increasing drug importation. Uh, many of the drug companies said that uh, the, the drugs that are, it's cheaper for them to import the drugs that they manufacture under the same terms other places back into the U.S. than to do it here. Um, so um, there, there are some it's expanding uh, importation from Canada, also uh, improving telehealth and making sure that that stays and that that's not just um, a convenience during COVID times, but that those provisions stay to help uh, folks on Medicare and and dialysis patients and all of those others that are enjoying um, the benefits of being able to be treated through telehealth at this current time. And then combating like future public emergencies, that's another place. And um, we just saw some new ones just this past week. And again, more about lowering drug prices and putting America first. You see two of them because they had two revisions under the same title. And then um, an America First health plan kind of really talking about what that looks like. So you can see quite, quite a lot that's come out in the recent time. We do have a, I do, I do have a blog post on our website that kind of walks through each of these and what they mean. But I just wanted to give you a feel because, you know, the incumbent president is the one, the the platform that we know the best because we've been watching these actions over the past four years. The the challenger that comes in, no matter what party they are, we kind of, it's kind of like, you know, the devil you have versus the devil you don't know, right? You don't really know whether you, you don't know how the new person will actually implement and how their whole administration will come together and work together. Those will be unknowns just like they were four years ago when Trump and his administration came in. So by kind of looking at this track record, I hope that this gives you some context as we start to enter forward. So now where do we go from here? I'm going to turn it over to Jamie, who's going to take us uh, to the present time and, and, and talk about the things that are going on right now. Thanks so much, Annette. That was a great review. 
I know that was certainly helpful for me and I'm hoping it was helpful for everybody as well. Um, turning on to you know, the employment law side, there actually haven't been a significant amount of congressional changes per se over the last four or so years outside of COVID, right? Most changes came in the form of revised federal agency positions on things like interpretation of discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, uh, determining who is a joint employer and things like that, as well as judicial interpretations of the law, right? Um, the courts have been very active over the past several years uh, interpreting what uh, federal laws mean. But still, we should look at where some things are at currently to understand their potential. So obviously, we can't talk about anything these days without talking about COVID-19. Uh, one of the major things that Congress did do is they passed the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, or FFCRA. And this provided largely uh, support for employees who need to take leave for reasons related to COVID-19. There were two types. One was the emergency paid sick leave that gives employees 80 hours uh, of leave time, and that's regardless of what employer they're at. And the an extension as well onto regular FMLA for what is being called emergency FMLA for uh, leave for em employees to be able to take time to care for a child whose uh, school or child care is closed due to COVID related reasons. Now, the big thing with the FFCRA is that it's going to end December 31st of this year. And currently, uh, there's no indication of what's going to happen if there will be an extension or what's going to happen with that. So that's definitely an interesting topic, especially as we come into flu season and the potential for a second wave. Uh, there were also um, PPP loans that were provided through the CARES Act by Congress, uh, but a lot of relief also came at the state level in terms of unemployment benefits and expansions of things, expansions of state paid sick leave laws and things like that. Uh, in terms of paid leave laws, there actually currently are no federally mandated paid leave laws outside of the FFCRA. Uh, anything that is paid leave for your sort of general reasons are all at the state level. So normally FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, is unpaid. Uh, Paid sick leave, that's also something that's at the state level. So there's, there isn't really anything, like I said, outside of FFCRA that is requiring paid leave, but there's a lot of discussion around it uh, that we're hearing uh, across the country in terms of what, uh, what can be done to support employees who need to take that time. There's also been 
a lot of discussion around rules and enforcement of whether somebody is an independent contractor versus an employee. And there are currently multiple tests for what that looks like, right? Everybody sort of has their own take. The U.S. Department of Labor has their test. The IRS has their test. The National Labor Relations Board has their test. Every state has a sort of different take or rules on it, uh, as well as, you know, case law interpreting all of these things. And it, at the federal level, it comes based off of the Fair Labor Standards Act or FLSA uh, definition of suffer or permit to work. And, you know, who does that apply to? And it looks at the control over a worker. There's a, a trend uh, across the states that are engaging in more enforcement and stricter standards. So, for example, in California, AB5 uh, that went into effect this year focuses on the ABC test, which is a different test than the economic realities test, which is a multi-factor test that um, is more prominent at the federal level. Uh, and so there's all these kinds of tests and things uh, kind of going around, but the tr overall trend that we're seeing is uh, definitely toward enforcement of independent contractors. Next, there is um, enhancement in non-discriminatory treatment. So another trend we're seeing is increasing protections against uh, discrimination based on categories related to sex, such as sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. Uh, there have also been protections added over the last few years, expanding on protections based on religion, such as religious dress and grooming practices. And this has also been increasing at the state level. We've been seeing a lot of states enacting rules that provide additional protections along these lines. But obviously, to make things more complicated, there have been conflicting rulings across uh, the federal uh, court of appeals about what is included in uh, protections based on sex. And so in June of this year, in a case called uh, Bostock versus Clayton County, the U.S. Supreme Court said that sex discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and transgender status. And this has actually been a really significant change for employers across the country, uh, in, in part because, the, for example, the Department of Labor has sort of gone back and forth depending on the administration in place uh, in terms of the expansiveness of what the definition of sex includes under Title VII. And so now the Supreme Court has spoken and said it really sort of casts a broader net than, um, you know, has been um, viewed by some over the past few years. So that's been a, a very significant change for employers across the country. Um, and then there's also a, a hot topic sort of in the news, which is uh, diversity training. So what is it, right? Um, it is intended to create awareness of diversity issues uh, in order to help teams work better together, to be more cohesive and productive. And it also helps companies comply with anti-discrimination laws by making people aware of behavior 
um, that can be problematic and create potential liability for employers. there is no currently there's currently no requirement that employers provide any diversity training, uh, but as always, employers still must comply with anti-discrimination laws. And we'll talk about this a little bit more once we get to the um, to the candidate's perspective. Uh, but that's kind of a a little brief snapshot of some of the key issues and things that uh, of where we stand today and and what is that going to mean for us looking forward. Annette, what do we need to consider on the benefits side of things? Yeah, thanks, Jamie. There, I think there's a couple big things, and um, we're seeing a lot of it in the news. Um, and so these are some things that could really shape, you know, shape or change the shape of the healthcare landscape coming forward. So the first, uh, obviously, the first big thing is the Supreme Court listening and to the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate. So if we go back a little bit, um, the individual mandate under the Affordable Care Act was basically that choice. It gave people a choice. Hey, you either buy health insurance and health insurance of a certain type that's considered, you know, having all of the essential health benefits, or you pay a shared uh, responsibility payment to the government. And so... Uh, this was challenged early on and went before the Supreme Court in 2012 and uh, that 2012 decision. Um, and what was being argued there was that the individual mandate was beyond the scope of Congress that they could not under the commerce clause for somebody to buy insurance. And so the, the, in a nutshell, the Supreme Court came back and, and in a five, four decisions said, you know what, um, we think it is constitutional um, because it's, we're not regulating commerce, we're not telling um, people to buy insurance, we're just taxing people on something if they, you know, don't have it. Like, so if they don't have insurance, we're just assessing a tax and that's well within the rights of Congress, which it is. So um, that's the way they looked at it. Well, fast forward to 2017 and the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that included a provision that amended the ACA to zero out the shared responsibility payment. So it didn't, it, it didn't get rid of the shared responsibility payment, but it made the penalty zero. And so shortly thereafter, 20 states attorneys general filed suit, again, challenging the constitutionality of this individual mandate, stating that because it's zero, it can't be considered a tax because they're not no longer taxing anything. And so that went, uh, it, the case was Texas versus U.S. that went um, to the Texas Federal District Court, and the decision was made that, yes, in fact, it is unconstitutional. So on the heels of that, there were a couple of other cases. There was California versus Texas. Um, and in that one, um, it, the question was whether or not the individual, um, whether they had standing to sue, and then whether or not this reduction to zero uh, rendered that the provision unconstitutional. And further, what if it is unconstitutional, can that just that provision be taken out or be severed from the Affordable Care Act without impeding the rest of the, the Affordable Care Act? In other words, could that one provision be removed and the rest of ACA stand, or does the removal of that cause the rest cause an impact that makes the ACA fall, if you will? So um, during some uh, the fifth court uh, 
looked at that. They upheld the t- the district court um, rules and then uh, the ruling. And um, you know, the question came up about you know. Um, this unconstitutionality of the individual mandate and um, whether it could be severed or not. And basically they said, I don't know. Um, So they sent it back to the district court. Um, And so what's happened coming forward is there is this change in all the people who are representing it. Um, Typically the federal government would defend the laws of the government. But in this case, the Trump administration, the Judiciary Committee said, no, we're not defending the ACA. And so um, the 18 states, uh, Democratic states attorneys general petitioned to be the um, defenders of the ACA and that was granted. So now you have some different parties going on than you normally would have. They've combined all the suits together. And basically, like I said, you know, they found the individual mandate unconstitutional, but the appellate court um, went even farther and said, not only is it unconstitutional, um, the whole thing, um, or the Texas court said that it's not severable. The appellate court sent it back. And so there's this impasse. The uh, Democrats and, and state's attorney general asked the Supreme Court to hear the case. And so they have agreed. And so the Supreme Court, their, their um, session runs from October to June. So they are slated to hear the first oral arguments in this case, uh, in this new case, I should say, challenging the constitutionality and the severability on November 10th, which of course is after the election. Now, typical, we probably will not see any final, so they'll hear the oral arguments and then they'll have to deliberate through that, write up their thoughts, et cetera, and then have their kind of vote. So we probably will not see anything, my guess is to the end of their session in June of 2021. So the impact to this year will be zero. And the impact to next year, even if it is found unconstitutional, um, probably will not take place until sometime in 2022. It'd be a lot to unravel. Um, And there's some some other reasons for that. Now, a couple of other things I want to kind of talk about is there's a lot of different types of health plans being, um, being promoted doing something different. So obviously there's some camps who want to preserve the ACA or uh, modify it or replace it, but it's all triggered off of what is today. Um, There's others who, and and this is on the Biden platform for sure, plus there's other congressional bills that I'll tell you about um, under the public option. So we have the public option. There's also what we've heard about as Medicare for all. um, And that would be a full replacement of everything we have today. And by the way, it isn't Medicare. Medicare is used to kind of make people sort of understand the concept, but it isn't our Medicare system today. And then there are some Medicare buy-ins, which would, uh, which basically create a little bit of a public option to buy into Medicare. And then there's some Medicaid ones too. So I just want to give you kind of just a really a glimpse to try to think about these things. So Affordable Care Act, what we have today, or some of the replacements that, uh, or modifications that the, that is part of the current Republican platform. Um, 
would preserve private run insurance. So we would have a private market. Government and states still would do the regulatory pieces, the rules and regulations um, about fairness, and then providers and insurers are independent. When we think about a public option, this provides uh, an additional choice to the existing programs, either the existing entitlement programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and or uh, the existing private market and creates a government-run plan option. It could be a buy-in to the Medicaid, um, which uh, um, Vice President Biden alluded to yesterday, although his plan isn't really laid out specifically, and there's lots of types of public options. So uh, in the coming months, hopefully we'll see more specifics here. But it would compete with the private market. It would be subsidized and prices would be negotiated by the government. And so providers would be reimbursed at a lower level than in the private marketplace, um, just like Medicare works, sort of, if you kind of think about that. A Medicare for all would be a full replacement. Again, it's not Medicare. It is a single government-run plan. Um, there are no choices. Everyone gets the same thing. Um, and so those choices will be dictated by the government and prices will be negotiated. Now, typically that comes with a higher cost because you're having this trade-off of everyone's in this plan, whatever that plan is, um, in exchange, up front in exchange for um, perhaps lower cost shares later, although all of, all of the single payer type plans don't quite work like that. And then um, Medicare buy-in allows younger people to actually access the existing Medicare plan and buy-in earlier. Uh, so it would put more people into the current Medicare program where prices are negotiated. So in a nutshell, that's what it's like. Public option is the thing most imminent. So I want to spend a little time with you just giving you some basics about what is the public option. Now, there are um, a number of bills in Congress, just letting you know, currently and have been introduced for a long time since the beginning of this Congress. There's uh, two, med there's a House and a Senate Medicare for All bill that is um, Senate Bill 1129 that was introduced by Bernie Sanders. And I've included in this deck that you'll get access to a comparison of the House and, and um, that bill. We're not going to spend a lot of time there today. Um, and then um, there's Medicare for More, which is a Medicare buy-in at age 50. There is something called the Medicare X Choice Act, which is a public option. Another public option called the Choose Medicare Act, Senate Bill uh, 1261 and HR 2463. And then Medicare at age, Act at age 55 and a Medicaid buy-in. So all of these have been in Congress for a long time. What I will tell you is every single one of these bills that I mentioned, um, obviously, Joe Biden and President Trump aren't voting members of Congress, so they can't um, participate. But, um, and um, neither is uh, Pence. He is only on the Senate side for tiebreakers, but he doesn't co-sponsor bills or anything like that. So the only one we can look at from a voting record is Kamala Harris, the um, vice presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. And I will tell you that she is a co-sponsor on all of these bills. So that gives you an idea of at least be between um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, that this is really the direction, either a public option or a single payer system is something that is um, 
where they would take health care. So that's important. So that's why I want to kind of share with you what it is. So um, public uh, option offered alongside um, private insurance plans. It would be available to individuals, small group, and a large group. Um, offered, it would typically be offered through the marketplace. Some of these bills allow uh, it to be offered in outside of the exchange marketplace. It would include eligible premium and cost-sharing subsidies and would raise that threshold instead of today where people get the subsidies up to 400% of the federal poverty line. This raises it to 600% of the federal poverty line, which I think is maybe like a, a hundred and it's six, it's a, it's a little over six figures for a family of four. Um, and then Covers all the ACA essential benefits, uses the exact same rating methodology and uh, modified community rating. So basically everybody of the same age pays the same thing as um, the ACA and expands that to large group as well. Um, A number of them require Medicare and Medicaid providers to participate. Um, So if you want to be a Medicare provider, which most people do because uh, there's a lot of aging people, um, you also have to participate in this public option. The Medicare payment rates are used to kind of keep costs down. Balanced billing is not expressly prohibited in these um, in these provisions. So that could be an issue um, for people coming forward. And then the government will, you know, be a negotiator on price, including drug price. So when you think about Medicare today, right, it's funded through payroll taxes over somebody's lifetime. And those, those dollars earn interest, and that's what funds it. And that's what uh, provides kind of that low cost sharing right now. Um, In, uh, In this option, you know, the government would set prices, they would compete directly against private market who can't use the pricing. So, um, you know, there is this potential to erode, depending on how it's set up, to erode the private market. And then adverse selection, you know, they're going to use the same rating, they're going to use the same methodologies to handle risk that are being used today for the Affordable Care Act. And that has actually driven costs up. Uh, also would allow self-insured and large groups to transfer their worst risk people, which is good for the group. You know, a lot of our employer groups struggle with that. And we have some couple really sick people and that makes the rates high for everybody. Well, allow them to transfer those into the public option. Um, So um, I'm not sure how that helps the risk, but it would increase the adverse selection of that pool. And that providers, you know, there's a low incentive to participate for them because they're taking less money or they're being reimbursed less unless it becomes a, something mandatory. So, and who knows, they might not be able to exist or on, on some of those lower rates. So those are things to consider. Now the Medicare for all bills, I told you, so this is the total replacement of what we have today and it isn't Medicare. Um, it basically would you know, graduate in depending on whether it's the House bill or the Senate bill. Uh, they're a little bit different, but it would gradually uh, cover everybody and would give you all essential health benefits. If we look at the Senate bill, which is the one that um, typically is looked at most often as being probably the the choice between the bills, um, basically everything's covered. So your um, health care is covered, transportation, dental, vision, hearing, home, home health care, community-based long-term care is in there. Um, there's no cost sharing, no deductibles, no co-pays, no co-insurance, except for a $200 annual limit on drugs. 
um, there is no balance billing. So this one does say no balance billing um, and it does provide some premium subsidies um, uh, for those under 150% of the poverty level. Everybody else is, uh, their premiums are calculated per capita. So basically how many ever people are in the program, here's the cost and here's the price ticket and uh, we divide it equally. Um, it would gradually be rolled in over a four-year period. Again, I'm just looking, focused on that Senate side. And then, um, you know, uh, it, there would be auto enrollments for people after that. So everybody automatically, you know, comes in at birth or, you know, when they become a citizen or whatever. And then um, once that's all in, any private health insurance that duplicates any benefits that are in this would be prohibited by law. So there can be no choice at this point. It is this, this is the only program. Now, some of the, some of the agencies who've done some math kind of look at the price tag and what the Congressional Budget Office has said that price tag would be for a program of this sort. And it would, um, it would be uh, fairly, fairly expensive, um, perhaps in the $24,000 range for people, um, which is more than some people uh, earn. So, um, uh, it's very interesting. So that's, it's a, it's a big price thing for the exchange of little cost at the time of um, treatment. Um, and there's lots of single payers out there in other countries, but they all work differently. So you can't really compare one until we see what these look like. But this is the idea. Okay, so let's kind of talk about um, what's on the table. We're going to look at a couple of things coming forward. Here's considerations for you. So um, Jamie's going to take us through some of the things you should look at on the employment side, and then I'll take a look at a couple of the things that you will want to look at on the healthcare benefits side, and then uh, what, uh, maybe more specifically, where each of the candidates are focused. So I'm going to turn that back over to Jamie now for the employer issues. Thanks, Annette. So let's talk about what's on the table. What are issues that are important to employers? So obviously, first and foremost, uh, it's the impact of COVID-19. Uh, you know, businesses are still struggling to survive during COVID. And, you know, how are they able to get by? What assistance are they able to get from any uh, new laws or rules or financial assistance and things along those lines. Um, so obviously, uh, employers definitely will be looking for those kinds of things. Um, employee leave, so it's sort of a subset of COVID-19, but also just more in general, right? Employers are struggling with managing people being out of the office or the workplace, either for their own illness or a family member's illness. And that has an impact on the employer's business, right? And so uh, managing that in terms of what their obligations are, uh, whether it's paid or not paid, and all those kinds of things are important to employers. And then obviously supporting businesses financially, uh, being able to pay workers, right? Uh, this is important, especially if, um, if business income is down because People aren't spending as much, they're not going out as much, and all of those kinds of things uh, definitely impacts the bottom line. And, you know, how are they able to, um, you know, move forward 
uh, and, and try to get to a better point where um, more income is able to come in and they can sort of build back, um, you know, once that takes place. Um, obviously, uh, anti-discrimination laws, those are always um, key things because employers want to know, what do I have to do, right? What do, what do I have to do to be compliant with what the rules are? Um, because employers want to stay out of trouble as much as they can. Uh, and so, you know, looking at, you know, what are those, what are those rules? Um, and then even taking it to um, the next level, which is how do I, uh, you know, create safety and harmony in my workplace um, so that my team is actually efficient and working well together and those kinds of things, right? Uh, so, so what does that look like? Um, payroll costs, uh, you know, what is hitting the employer's bottom line, right? What, what is happening with um, taxes and tax credits and um, those kinds of things? Um, you know, is, is leave going to be paid? Uh, you know, there's just so much to, to sort of consider there. And then as we sort of talked about uh, previously, independent contractors, right? Who is entitled to worker status protections and who isn't? Uh, and, you know, the, the impact to that question is actually very significant uh, because if a, a worker is misclassified, uh, it's not just, oh, well, they should have been, you know, classified as an employee. They should have had access to benefits. They should have had uh, you know, taxes paid into Social Security and, and, you know, other types of taxes and things that employers normally take advantage of. Um, they should have had certain wage protections and overtime um, and meal and rest periods and, and all those things that really add up. Um, so it's not sort of just, oh, it was a mistake. There, there's actually pretty heavy uh, penalties you know, if, if that happens. And so employers need to know who do I need to make an employee and who can stay as an independent contractor. So that's actually a pretty significant um, issue. So let's, let's sort of take a look at the, the platforms. You know, how do some of these concerns translate to the candidate platforms and are they even addressed, right? So for COVID-19, um, President Trump's uh, platform has uh, talked about, well, actually, not the platform itself for this first piece, but President Trump has talked about uh, forgiving the payroll tax um, that has been deferred. So there was an executive order um, that went out allowing um, employers to defer payment of payroll taxes for a certain period. Um, however, they will be due next year. And he's given some indication that that could be forgiven if he was reelected. It's not really part of his um, official platform. Um, so it's not really clear uh, what will happen there. And it certainly didn't really impact employers um, in the sense that if employers are engaging or, or uh, participating in the payroll tax deferral, um, the savings was directed specifically at the employee. The employer still had to pay uh, the amounts that were due to the employees. There was no 
real savings there for employers. Um, so it's not really clear what could happen with that. But um, uh, President Trump's platform does talk about, obviously, uh, vaccine production, which, um, you know, is, is hugely significant uh, for everybody um, and getting everybody uh, and businesses to return to normal, as well as preparing for future pandemics. On uh, candidate Biden's side, uh, his platform has talked about additional aid for businesses um, that may come in, you know, the form of uh, additional aid packages, tax benefits, uh, potential loans, and things like that. One of the um, interesting pieces uh, is that he would be looking to expand work share programs. So work share programs uh, allow employers to uh, reduce their employees' hours worked, um, but through sort of the federal insurance allows employees to not have a significant hit to their pay, right? It allows there to be some uh, supplementation um, to the pay to allow employees to still uh, receive that income so that they can uh, pay their bills and things like that. Um, and in terms of what uh, Biden is proposing is that some states do currently offer work sharing programs. Um, they're not necessarily available in all uh, states, but that would be the goal is to make them available in all states uh, so that, uh, you know, workers could make up for these, these reduced hours. Um, and, you know, it would include uh, tax credits for extra health care costs, uh, and they would also look to raise the caps on employer work reductions to 80%. So right now, uh, work share programs ha look at reduction in hours between 40 and 60%, and they would look to expand that to provide even more benefits um, for workers and to allow employers to uh, keep their operations going even at um, reduced capacity so so that they can you know make it through this um, this period uh, another thing that uh, the Biden team would look to do would be to expand the emergency paid sick leave so um, as we mentioned the FFCRA is going to be expiring at the end of this year um, they would be looking to uh, provide uh, longer benefit and as well expand it to all uh, businesses uh, rather than uh, just one to uh, under 500 employees. Uh, so that's something to to think about there. In terms of leaves themselves, um, there isn't anything stated in the, the president's platform about leaves and you know things have been currently silent as we mentioned before in terms of what could happen with the FFCRA if it would be expanded or anything like that, or if the president would support a bill that had that in it. So that's um, sort of up in the air. Um, it's not really clear at this point. Um, I imagine that if Congress, um, you know, presented a bill for the president's signature that included that, um, it would likely be something that uh, could be approved uh, to help, you know, further support uh, employers and employees during this time. Um, for the for the Biden uh, platform, 
Uh, it actually talks about making uh, paid sick leave available uh, across the country. So right now, paid sick leave is largely just uh, state-based. Some states have it and some states don't. Uh, they would be looking to make this uh, more universal for employers of 15 employees or more uh, and give them about uh, seven days worth of paid sick leave, um, which could contribute to managing uh, workers during the COVID-19 time, um, as well as just more generally uh, for, you know, as people may need it. Um, and then also there's a proposal to make family um, and uh, medical leave paid, uh, which uh, would likely come under obviously the FMLA. So the 12 weeks that under FMLA that are currently unpaid, um, they would be looking to make those paid. Now, all of this obviously would require congressional action, right? Um, this is not something that um, any sort of uh, executive order could, could really do. So. Um, but these are things that, you know, they would be supporting within Congress and, and trying to get through. So it would be interesting to see, you know, either way, what happens there um, to help provide employees uh, and employers with, with some guidance on how to, to manage that process. Um, independent contractors, like I said, that's, that's definitely a hot topic. Um, the Department of Labor actually just proposed a um, five-factor test uh, and it's in a notice of rulemaking, of proposed rulemaking. And as I mentioned, you know, there's different tests with different numbers of factors and things like that. Uh, this version has a, is a five-factor test uh, that does follow the economic realities test. Um, and it sort of consolidates some of the, the current factors and, you know, changes the weight of others. It primarily looks at um, the nature and degree of the worker's control over the work um, and the worker's opportunity for um, profit and loss. And, and even though there's five, those would carry the most weight um, in terms of determining whether or not the person may be considered um, an independent contractor versus an employee. Now, that process obviously takes um, quite some time. It's only a proposed rulemaking at this point. Um, it goes through a comment period and, you know, revisions and reviews, uh, and, and it would be several months before something, you know, along those lines actually got passed. Um, otherwise, the, the platform is somewhat silent in terms of, you know, what should happen with, with independent contractors. Um, on the Biden side, um, the only real mention about independent contractors is to really pursue enforcement of misclassification. So basically just trying to uh, make sure employers are following the rules um, through enforcement. Uh, there isn't there wasn't really any significant change in terms of proposal to maybe what should be changed about the definitions of independent contractors, anything like that. It's really just making sure that, uh, again, employers are, are following those rules. Um, and then discrimination. So on the, the Trump side, um, there is nothing really formal on his platform about that. Um, 
you know, as we mentioned before, there's there's been some discussion about uh, diversity sensitivity training, and there was this executive order recently where the president said that uh, federal contractors and subcontractors cannot provide uh, diversity sensitivity training to uh, their employees. Um, now, this largely has just been stated as an issue over the content of the training, because obviously employers have to comply with uh, you know, federal as well as state uh, anti-discrimination laws. Uh, the only thing that can really obviously change that is Congress. Um, and, and this executive order was specifically limited to federal contractors um, because that portion is within the president's power. Um, and last night in the presidential debates, there was just only a brief mention of this topic. Um, and uh, Vice President Biden was asked about it and basically his point was that he um, supports diversity sensitivity training. But there's nothing in either of their platforms about it or what any rules you know, may happen in that way. Um, I don't expect there to be any significant change. Um, but like I said, right now, there's no requirement that uh, employers engage in this type of training other than that they just have to comply with the um, you know, anti-discrimination laws. There's not a whole lot of information there. The Biden platform does actually go into some other areas of discrimination. So, um, for example, uh, the Biden platform talks about uh, wanting to make sure that accommodations are provided to um, women based on pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions is where they have um, their work is limited by their ability. And this is actually um, taking it a step further than what is currently there on the pregnancy uh, disability rules. Uh, for the most part, at the federal level, um, the pregnancy uh, protections are related to where there is an actual disability. And Biden's proposal uh, is making it, so, or would make it, that there doesn't have to be an actual uh, disability as, um, you know, viewed by a healthcare provider. But if there is some limited ability that employers should provide some type of reasonable accommodation um, under those circumstances to assist the worker. Uh, so again, that would be something that would require congressional action. Um, so, and, and there are there is a bill pending on this uh, issue in the House. Uh, I don't believe it's gone any further at this point, but you know, with the changeover, uh, if there is a change in um, the election, uh, that may be something that could move um, if Biden is elected. Um, he also, in his platform, talked about reaffirming LGBTQ protection. Um, it's not really clear what that would entail. As I mentioned, in the Bostock case that just happened this year, there was a significant shift uh, at the federal level for uh, what is included in sex discrimination. So there may need to be you know, a little bit more clarity on that, uh, but I think largely just supporting that, um, uh, that direction. 
And then another significant portion of uh, the Biden platform talks about strengthening pay equality laws. Um, so making sure that people are receiving equal pay for equal work uh, and other things uh, surrounding that in terms of, uh, you know, uh, paycheck protection and those types of things. So largely expanding on uh, laws that are in place, but uh, strengthening them uh, to some degree. So, uh, you know, and looking at it overall, um, you know, there, the, the focus hasn't been too much on either side for, um, for workers and, and employers. And, but, you know, these are a few of those key areas um, that we've seen some information. And like I said, I think it just sort of remains to be seen on, you know, what happens in the election in terms of the direction that each one would go. Um, so, well, you know, everybody, it'll be anybody's guess. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. Um, I'm, I'm going to kind of take the same thing on the healthcare issues and, you know, COVID-19 has really turned, turned the world upside down and, you know, it's, just another month till election and clearly, you know, most everybody is focused still on just staying well and adjusting to whatever's next. The current healthcare and economic impacts of this disease, the treatment, shutdowns of business, all the unprecedented spending packages to keep people going can't be compared to any other administration. They also cannot be compared to historical events of any kind. It's, it's, and it's also still too early to know what the final impacts of any of that are. So that makes it really hard for Americans to kind of figure out what's the right step forward since it's all uncharted territory. And now we're presented with all of these um, challenges we wouldn't have had otherwise and that creates a whole new set of rules. So I think, you know, definitely the health impact of, of COVID that is important vaccines like Jamie talked about and getting those to people sooner than later and how you're going to produce all that. All of those are good and the right questions um, coming forward. Those are imperative to try to get back to somewhat of uh, a normal environment. Although in many areas there are people who are moving more quickly in that direction and those that aren't. And so it's not a consistent path at this point. The, the next thing I think people are focused on definitely is their employer-sponsored healthcare coverage. And, you know, more than 175, maybe it's 180 million people now, which is the vast majority of everybody are covered under employer-sponsored healthcare. So Medicare, Medicaid, and the individual market combined cover less people than the employer market does. So when you're thinking about changes coming forward, this is a really, uh, this employer-based program is really highly efficient and provides lots of American workers and families with, with affordable coverage where the employer's footing part of that cost. And, uh, and actually most of the cost um, so there's economies of scale in that and the spreading of risk that exists in that. So disrupting that, also a definite consideration for folks. Am I willing to lose what I have today for something that's unknown um, coming forward? That's going to be a hard choice for folks as well. And also the tax break that comes with that. 
the, your employer's contributions toward your health care and your contributions all have tax advantages. Um, that may not be the case with other programs coming in the future. Um, entitlement programs, people who are medi- uh, covered by Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, though, that's also a consideration. How is that going to be handled? What happens to those programs if we do something different? And then cost transparency and pricing. I have no idea why things cost what they cost because I don't get to see anything. I don't, I pay a copay, but I don't know what things cost. And so as I try to direct my own treatment, I'm doing so with a blindfold on. So that's this thought about if I knew what things cost, first of all, maybe people would have better accountability. It's the providers um, justifying what they're charging for particular things. And it would give me the wherewithal to ask about those. So I think, um, uh, and, and it goes without saying that the drug pricing uh, problem it continues. There's been things to address that, but that will have that that should be of high consideration is how are we going to manage costs going forward, no matter what the platform is. And then surprise billings, making sure that the patient doesn't suffer for provider choices that are outside of their control. And then finally, just the overall cost. So we talk a lot about different costs, et cetera, but the reality is many people are paying exorbitantly more than they did before for for coverage with much higher deductibles. So, um, you know, I just talked to a couple who are 55 and 56 years old. It's just the two of them. And their premiums are over $1,400 per month. So um, those are unsustainable rates for a really large deductible. So then they have a $10,000 deductible. So these are things and and a place that, that just is unsustainable for most American families. And a change is needed what that changes. We want to make sure that it moves us in the right direction. So thinking about the healthcare platforms from that that perspective, let's look at the health plans themselves. Um, So um, the Trump platform is continuing on this path that he started in 2017 to expand choice, lower cost, modify ACA, and continue um, making whatever the health plans are better and managing those costs. Um, he did reinforce covering all pre-existing conditions. That was under, uh, that was also challenged very early on in 2017. Um, that was the thought when he came out with the executive order to expand the short-term limited duration insurance plans that do contain pre-existing conditions that are meant only to be a stopgap for people who can't get coverage or they're outside of the open enrollment time and can't get full coverage. Um, he was challenged then and, and said, and, and so have the Republicans, and there are bills to preserve the, the pre-existing. I don't think that would be a popular thing from anybody to remove that or to audit. There's no alternative. We don't have another risk way to pay at the current time. So um, for people who are who have the greatest conditions and in the highest costs. On the Biden side, expanding choice, lowering cost by introducing a public option is his piece. And as I've said, you know, Kamala Harris is also for public, uh, the various public option bills. She's a co-sponsor on those as well as Medicare for all. So all of those components. On lowering health care costs, 
the focus for the Trump administration is putting patients and doctors back in charge of their healthcare system. So helping them to negotiate with each other, get the treatment they need, direct their care, and do whatever it takes um, is where they're looking. And then uh, thereby some of that competition, et cetera, and, and the reduction in tra- transparency and costs, and then reduction in, in some of these middlemen and different um, ways of operating today uh, to lower health insurance premiums. And uh, another thing is to improve access for people and um, cost in rural America. So on the Biden side, um, this is additional tax credits, definitely to lower income folks, helping people, uh, you know, gain better access to coverage or use that, and then additional premium tax credits. Uh, on the prescription drug side, there's been uh, all the executive orders that we that we uh, covered early on. Take a look at those. That is the continuing um, focus for this administration and cutting prices, increasing transparency, utilizing methods like importa- safe importation and how that works. There are some uh, rules currently being released on that. Well, actually, a final rule just came out on that. Um, also, to make sure that if we're in another situation like this, we have a stockpile of all the things that we need and that all those things are manufactured in the U.S. or not dependent on others, that those will be areas of focus uh, learning from this particular pandemic. For the Biden uh, the Biden party, they're looking at negotiating Medicare drug prices. Again, another way of um, trying to curtail uh, drug pricing, limiting what the prices are when a new drug launches, ending the, uh, the abuse in the, on the drug system, and then also overseas purchase. Um, there's not a lot of details. Again, it's harder with a challenger just because they don't have the 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 past uh, four years of things that they've done or orders that they've given. So we don't have quite the detail, but it'll give you an idea of the the areas of focus. And then the other initiatives kind of to, there's a lot of um, similarities between the two of them in these things. There's things they agree on, ending surprise billing, protecting Medicare and Medicaid. Um, Trump is uh, very high in protecting the veterans, and then just having a world-class healthcare healthcare services that are affordable. And then uh, Joe Biden also not a fan of surprise billing. That seems to be the one place that everyone agrees. And a lot of states are moving faster than Congress. Congress can't agree on just one component. That's their issue. They all agree the patient should be responsible. Um, and we can talk about that at a different time, but mental health parity and then expanding access to contraceptives and funding for Planned Parenthood are all within the, the Biden platform focus. So um, a lot of stuff today, I know. Um, I wanted to make sure that, um, you know, we're a tight on time, but I want to get in a few questions because there's been a lot of questions that have come in and um, our team will be uh, are providing uh, answers in the chat, but we've noticed some trends and some particular questions. So I want to take a look at um, some of those uh some of those if we can, if you have some time to stay on with us, we'll take a few of those. Uh, there's some, you know, really basic themes that have come in. Jamie, one of the things that that uh, has come in um, is this uh, 
kind of pre-election question about, uh, as an employer, can we promote voting within the employee base? And, and do you suggest that we make sure people know that they're encouraged to take time off to vote? And can we pay people to take time off um, to be a poll worker? How does that work? <clears throat> so uh, every state has their own uh voting leave laws, right, in terms of what an employer is required to provide if the time must be paid or unpaid, and when the employee can take the time, uh, you know, sometimes it may be, uh, you know, if it's beginning or end of their shift, um, or, you know, it may be allowed uh, only if they, they wouldn't otherwise have time to take time off to vote. Uh, so the first thing is to know what the rules are in your uh, particular state of operation, uh, to know what you have to comply with and make sure that you're at least meeting that minimum. Uh, from there, if employers want to provide uh, a more robust benefit, uh, employers can certainly do that. So if there is no requirement in your state to allow employees to take time off to vote uh, or excuse me, to take time off to um, uh, be a poll washer or, you know, some of those other things in terms of involvement, but you want to provide that benefit, um, employers are certainly able to do those kinds of things. Um, and so I would certainly uh, say that for employers that want to make this uh, a high-profile benefit to allow employees to, um, you know, engage in the political process by going out to vote, um, you know, that that is a great way for um, employees to feel uh, like, you know, they have a chance to have their voices heard uh, in this election one way or, nor or another. So, you know, I think that that's a great thing that all employers should be should be thinking about how they want to manage that this election season. Yeah, fantastic. Um, uh, we've got a number of questions all centered around the Supreme Court case deciding the fate of the ACA here. You know, a couple of things, what happens, how will pre-existing be affected in group policies? Um, again, if it's overturned, I don't know. I don't think, I think you'll see Congress very quickly pass um, some law saying, uh, you know, to preserve, there's already a bill sitting out there that they might move that through pretty quickly to preserve pre-existing. And there's a number of co-sponsors on that. So I, I, and I do think there's bipartisan support for that. So I don't think that you would see that change immediately. And the other thing I wanted to say is whether, you know, even if it were overturned. So the way the process works today is, um, if it is vacated for some reason or some portions of that law are vacated, there will be an implementation to it. So there will be rules about when will that become effective? All, you know, even if it were um, retrospective uh, uh, as far as, you know, negating it, the market would have to respond to those things. And the process right now in the individual and the group, the insured markets, rates have to be filed with the state in April for the following year. So when you think about that, by the time the Supreme Court makes a determination and they give it to us in June, rates probably will already have been filed um, or yeah, most likely will have been filed. And so will the plan designs. 
And so unless there's some, the state provides some sort of change to how that process works and writes different regulations, then, then the rates and plans would be locked in for 2022. Um, or yeah, for 2022. So, um, you know, so there would be some future days, dates as those unroll. And then it depends on which provisions. So there's a whole lot of things. If just the individual mandate is found under unconstitutional and it's found to be severable from the law, it depends if anything else goes with it. If it doesn't, then it virtually has no impact on employer plans in group policies. Um, but if other components come with it, then we would have to see. So again, I think you can rest assured that like it's not going to be like flipping a light switch, just like the implementation of ACA was not like flipping a light switch either. So I think you can rest assured there, you know, that those things will be figured out as things happen. The other thing is, um, the other question that came up, Jamie, I don't know if you want to weigh in too on this, but, you know, if a Republican wins, how does that affect the mandate? If a Democrat wins, how does that? The idea of the Supreme Court and the judicial body is that it's a separate branch of government and it should not be impacted by a particular party. The job of the justices is to interpret the Constitution against whatever the challenge is. And um, it should not have a party affiliation, you know, in the real world. Um, what you want to make sure is that justices would not be swayed by that, um, that their job is just to interpret the laws as they exist. And that's, uh, that I think that's an important thing to look at when you're looking at some of these justice candidates. Um, uh, Jamie, do you have any thoughts on that? Additional thoughts? Um, no, I, I don't say that I would have anything really additional to that. Um, you know, I think it's, it's generally just a complex issue. Um, and, you know, in terms of the discussion surrounding the Supreme Court, um, as well as, you know, any nominations that are taking place currently, and, you know, how that may or may not impact the outcome, uh, you know, but but generally, um, you know, what we have seen is that, um, you know, justices that have been appointed, you know, do um, obviously see things differently at times, but it's all based on, you know, their interpretations of the laws as they stand. So, um, you know, we would likely look to see, uh, you know, that tradition continue. Very good. Uh, um, one other one that came up that I wanted to ask you about too um, is um, how to handle. So you know, they said po politics have polarized the U.S. in in a way that we uh, we haven't really experienced since the Civil War. But so how to how do you handle employees who, based on their political beliefs, don't want to work with one another? Well, so that certainly is a challenge. Um, you know. I would say, first and foremost, employers need to make sure that they are complying with discrimination laws within their state, right? Um, so if that means, um, you know, providing discrimination training 
to employees in terms of letting them know what behavior is and is not acceptable in the workplace. Uh, you know, people can have whatever um, beliefs or uh, political opinions that they want, um, but you know, whether or not that is appropriate in the workplace is another issue, right? People in the workplace should be focused on work. Now, there are some states that do protect, um, you know, people's uh, political positions, uh, one of those being California, uh, which basically means that, you know, employers in those states cannot discriminate against somebody based on their political affiliation. Um, but again, I would say that you know, those are, employers can still manage the type of behavior that goes on in the workplace. Uh, you know, people should be focused on their uh, work and, you know, working well with other, others and getting things done. So employers can still require employees to be, um, you know, courteous to one another um, and to promote, um, you know, successful outcomes in the workplace and things along those lines. Um, and I think that is, you know, really where the focus should be. And obviously for uh, people who engage in um, harassment, discrimination, violence in the workplace, those should almost definitely be subject to the employer's policies against those things uh, and, you know, should be, should be handled accordingly. So employers do have a, a good amount of um, leeway in terms of setting the tone for the type of behavior that is expected in the workplace um, and obviously hand-in-hand uh, -hand with making sure that they comply with those anti-discrimination laws. Great. Thanks, Jamie. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. Um, these are indeed challenging times. As you need it, One Digital Strategic works, Workforce Consultants are here with expert guidance and support to help you navigate through these changing laws and regulations as the situation evolves. Don't hesitate to reach out and learn more. Hopefully in the next couple of debates, we may learn more and more may be uncovered um, as, we, as the candidates start to settle in, we get closer to election time. So once again, I'd like to remind everyone on today's call that you can view this employer advisory session and past sessions on our website. Stay safe, healthy, and stay connected with your family, friends, and coworkers, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.